Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come before your word, we recognize that uh, these uh, things are things we need to hear. We, we need to hear them because you set them uh, and you've set them aside that we might uh, know of them and know what they mean. And so we ask that your spirit would guide us into all truth as you've promised. You would focus our hearts on who Jesus is and what he's done. And Lord, we pray uh, that you might give me wisdom as I share these words with boldness and clarity and give us great love for you, Lord Jesus, as we come before you in your word. We commit this time to you as an act of worship. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are uh, continuing uh, our series through the book of Matthew. And this uh, week we come to what's called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, And it's a section of teaching through chapters 24 and 25 of the book of Matthew where Jesus shares about the end times, what's to come. And uh, of course, it's called the Olivet Discourse because it's where Jesus actually retreated with his disciples outside uh, of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And then this is one of the largest uh, chunks of teaching we actually have uh, in Matthew's Gospel. And so it's a great opportunity for us over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at this, what Jesus said about the times of the end, or the end times as they're often told. Now, uh, this is a very interesting uh, subject matter because Christians have been trying to work these things out for a very, very long time. And it's important uh, for us as we come to this next six weeks to put a few things uh, in turn, to frame our discussion really well. Uh, the first thing is that we live between two distinct events which Jesus speaks about in these chapters. The first uh, event which comes after this, of course, is the fall of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was destroyed in about 70 AD, and Jesus actually tells us that this is going to happen. In fact, we see this in verses 1 and 2. He says, after the disciples say, look how lovely the temple looks from the Mount of Olives, Jesus replies, just wanting to bring them down a couple of pegs, not to think too much about the temple. He says, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this happened in 70 AD. Also, Jesus talks about things that are going to happen at the very end. And also, Jesus talks about things that are going to keep on happening between when he spoke these and especially between the fall of Jerusalem and his return. And so we're in that middle space between the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and 2021, and we don't actually know when the end will be. In fact, Jesus says a little bit later in chapter 24, he says, no one knows, only the Father. Jesus, in fact, says here that not even the Son himself knows the exact day or hour of his return. So it's a bit unknown to us, the end, but Jesus has given us much to think about and much instruction and teaching for us right now. And Christians have been depending upon these words for the last 2,000 years. And it's interesting because the disciples ask a couple of questions. And these are the questions that are often on our hearts as well. We see this in verse 3. The disciples come to Jesus privately and they ask him, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We want to know when. We want to know what the exact signs are. And we want to know Jesus, when will you return? Now, Jesus doesn't necessarily give us all the particulars of the answers that we want, but he certainly gives us the answers that we need. 
He certainly gives us the answers that we need. And they are the things that we are going to look at today. And it's very important for us to look at this, uh, these kind of topics because we're in a world which is in one of those particular times in our generation where everyone is uncertain about the future. Are we not? We're thinking about these things. What's going to happen? And we're not just thinking them on a broad sort of global level. We're often thinking about our own lives. A lot of people recently have lost their jobs. Things have become difficult. You know, we're seeing trade restrictions all around the world. There's all this talk about the global supply chain shortage and what that means. We're seeing an increase in technology. We're seeing an increase in government control. You know, not to mention a global pandemic, of course. All of these things are going on and we all want to know what is coming next. And it's, there's something in the human heart which makes us want to make predictions about what's coming, don't we? I mean, like we, we all sit with anticipation when the weather report comes out because we want to know what the weather's going to be like for the next week and then we'll have a topic of conversation for small talk with the people that we talk with. But more importantly... We also want to know, and we're listening to, and our, um, all those in authority make decisions based on predictions of the future. The issue is we are so often wrong. And yet, as we will see today, Jesus is never wrong. And so, therefore, we should listen to his words. Okay, so that gives us a bit of frame of reference for the next six weeks. How about today? Well, verses uh, 1 to 14 of our text today, and particularly we're going to focus on verses 4 to 14, Jesus is actually giving a bit of instruction for some of the general trouble that we're going to see in this time, but also some of the specific things that Christians are going to face during this end time between the fall of Jerusalem and Jesus' return. He gives us some encouraging things this year as well. But I've noticed in the text that Jesus is actually doing one of the things he often does with his disciples and with us, is he acts like a shepherd. Jesus acts like a shepherd because in verse 4 he says, See that no one leads you, follow in Jesus' footsteps and work towards worldwide evangelism. All right, so we've got those four stay near, listen, watch, and follow to our good shepherd. Okay, so number one. Stay close. Now, I've got to frame this as well because we tend to think about um, sort of sheep and uh, sort of agriculture and those sorts of things in modern terms where you've got like a quad bike or a motorbike, sheep dogs, thousands of acres and sort of fences around them. Well, back in Jesus' day, shepherding was a little bit different. There was a shepherd and maybe some other workers who would walk around leading the sheep who would follow them, listen to their voice, watch what they were doing, stay very close so that they were protected from the wolves and danger out there and so that they would find the green pastures and the waters that they needed. And so we are using an ancient metaphor of shepherding today, not the 21st century version we have in Australia. So number one, do not be led astray. That is, stay near to the shepherd. And the reason we need to do that is because Jesus says, many will come in verse 5, in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Not just a few, by the way, but many. So there will be many false saviors pulling at your attention all of the time. Come follow me. Come listen to me. Come devote your life to me. 
Now, we have a secular version of this, of course, in our society. You know, we have uh, a false saviour that comes through uh, security. We think that if we can just lock down our material possessions, our income, our superannuation, get some assets behind us, get a good career and a good job, then we will be secure for the times to come. Notice, in our culture and time, when there's a global pandemic, what happens to house prices? They go up. Notice what happens to people's... uh, And there's a a great difficulty at finding work all around the world now because there's a great demand to get a stable job. What are we looking for underneath it? We're looking for security. Notice that in times like this, the gold prices skyrocket. Why? Because it's a stable asset, supposedly. Again, people are looking for security in these things. That's often a secular response, is to find our saviour in our security. Another secular response is to find comfort for the times to come by looking after our health. You know, that is, we you know, think, well, we need to stay fit. Who knows what could happen? I need to invest in some medical insurance. I need to make sure that I'm participating in making sure the medical advancements continue and grow in this culture and society. And so we put our hope in these things. And quite easily, our entire focus, particularly as we get older, can be about our own health and well-being. That's another uh, very easily something we can look for salvation in. That is, if we get this thing, if we stick with it, it will be the thing to look after us in the end times. And we can also do that, and this is a problem for children and parents, we can think that education also can be a sort of saviour figure. That is, uh, if we look to our, for parents, look to our children, we think as long as they get a good education, then they'll be okay. As long as we get them through high school and then to university and then to get into a good career, that can actually, underneath it all, be our number one aim for them, as if those things will save them. Isn't it interesting? That's a parental approach. But for the children, that can also be their same approach. What will you do when you grow up, as we heard last week from our children? We'll have different ambitions and desires, again, to get ahead, to find a place in this world of security and comfortability. So these are our secular responses that we can often be looking for saviour figures in our secular world. And of course, we know that there have been many that have actually claimed to be the Christ himself over the years, going from uh, Jewish figures after Jesus uh, in the first couple of centuries uh, through to sort of messianic cults throughout the world, through to the founders of other religions, have claimed to be the one that everyone should be looking for. It keeps happening. In fact, even today, would you believe it, there's a bloke in Queensland, his name is Alan, and he claims to be Jesus. And he foretold that, uh, he lives in Kingaroy, which is an, it's an interesting place in Queensland, and he foretold there's going to be a 100 metre tidal wave and it will come and make uh, Kingaroy a beachside paradise. That was in 2011. didn't happen, of course. Um, but he was hoping so. And I, I think he's still going. Uh, they've still got sort of a, a religion uh, based upon him being the new Christ. Isn't it interesting? Of course, his name would be Alan in Australia, wouldn't it? There you go. So the, temp- the great temptation 
is to be led astray, both in a secular and religious sense. Now, I think for, uh, that is, religious people, we're not that inclined to look for another religion. We're not that inclined to, you know, well, oh, no, let's, let's become Muslim because you know, they've, they've got a you know, better saviour figure than us. Or let's become Baha'i. Or, you know, let's follow the Buddhist faith. Or, you know, other different ways of, and systems of belief. We are more inclined actually in our hearts, particularly in Australia, that is, to buy into the gods of this culture, the secular gods, the ones I mentioned, security through wealth accumulation, comfort through medicine, health and education. It is very dangerous for us. We think these things will save us and we must ask ourselves the question, is that where our focus is in these last days? Because Jesus warned us that will actually lead us astray. And he said there will always be things trying to pull you astray and not only that, many will be led astray. Of course it is the great gods of our culture, wealth, security, comfort, that are the ones that pull strongest at our heartstrings. They're the things that we want so much. And of course, in our culture, they're the things that endanger us from being led astray. So what, what do we do instead? Well, our Saviour calls to us. He says, don't be led astray. Many will say, don't we, you know, we think that all we need is that house, that career, this one thing. And if we get it, if our you know, goals are reasonable and we work really hard towards it, it's never enough. They never deliver on their promises. And so that is the truth. They never do. But Jesus always does deliver on his promises. When we stay near to him, we realise that none of these things will satisfy. When we stay near to Jesus we realise that only he can give us what we truly need in our hearts. And so when our hearts wander, we must realise, oh, like sheep, we go a little bit further and further away. We can't hear his voice quite as well. And we're not protective of wars and rumours of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Even in the last century, we have had a dramatic amount of war, famine and earthquakes. Did you know that in the last century we've had like two major world wars? Well, actually, no, that was a little bit before, uh, a century ago. But in the 20th century, we had two major world wars. Wars that the first one we thought it was literally called the war to end all war. And there was 20 million deaths, not to mention double that in casualties. You know, there were terrible things that people did using, you know, like um, biological agents and gases to kill people that they vowed never to do it again. And then, you know, only a couple of decades later, we had World War II. And you know how many people died in World War II? 80 million people died. The greatest loss of life in any particular war. Terrible. And it ended with the dropping of the atomic bomb. And we thought that we put away things that were too deadly and too devastating for people. And yet, there they are. Did you know that there was an earthquake just in 2004 that hit 9.1 on the Richter scale? 
And of course, that was the Boxing Day earthquake, which produced a tsunami, which I think 280,000 people died as a direct result of that, if, and displacement all, all across the uh, nations that surround the Indian Ocean. I mean, this, like, these signs are happening within at least our generation or the generation of our parents or grandparents. So yes, Jesus is r- right. We will see these things. We will hear about them. What about famine? Did you know that there was a famine in China between 1959 and 1961? They estimate between 10 and 50 million people died. And they reckon 70% of it was because of mismanagement. And 30% was because of severe conditions in the environment. Isn't that terrible? Famines, earthquakes, wars, rumours of wars... Gee, we've had these things within memory for some of us and certainly for our parents' and grandparents' generations. And yet, what does Jesus say? Let's get this right because we can go, wow, this is really scary if we really think about it, not to mention our current circumstances. What does Jesus say? See that you are not alarmed. Well, this must take place, but the end is not yet. See that you are not alarmed. Now, how can we be not alarmed by this? It's interesting, you know, alarm is a fascinating thing. Um, Back in uh, 1976, uh, there was a a person who foretold uh, the future, a clairvoyant. His name was John Nash. And he foretold that there was going to be a great tidal wave in Adelaide as a religious judgment. Get this. Because Australia was leading the nation in, uh, sorry, South Australia was leading the nation in uh, progressive laws. So it was going to be religious judgment. They will come and then they will go. And then they will come and then they will go. And we don't know when it's going to be the end. It could be, you know, because there's been maybe 500 before and there might be 500 to come. We don't know where we are. In fact, Uh, Jesus says these are but the beginning of the birth pains when these things happen. So the reality could well be that Jesus' return is very far away. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. When we see all these things happening in the world, Jesus is saying every generation will have birth pains, a contraction. It'll hurt. You know, for the mums amongst us, you know what it feels like to have a contraction, but then it dissipates and then it comes back. Interesting, for our firstborn, we had a thing called uh, Braxton Hicks contractions, which sort of the contractions before the main contractions. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying. These are just the beginning. These things will happen over and over again in every generation. But what are they there for? They are there to remind us that there's more going on behind the scenes, that an end, a definite end will come. Jesus gives this in answer to questions from his disciples. What are the signs? There are signs then in every generation. Because every generation has had wars and rumours of wars. Every generation has had famine. Every generation has had earthquakes. And we've had a few of those. Not to mention other things going on in our world. They are to remind us that there are bigger things at stake than the others we put our hope in. They just shake us up. And you know why people cling so tightly to their false saviours? You know, the comfort, the wealth, the education, the health. We cling so tightly because we're afraid of what's to come. 
because our world has been shaken up. And yet these things should teach us to go and listen to the voice of the shepherd. So the voice of the shepherd. Now this is important because Jesus is teaching us really clearly what's going on. He's trying to bring down our fear, saying don't be alarmed. Don't be fearful. Don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it, to use a few synonyms. And yet we do. We buy into the anxiety of this season. We buy into the fear of this season. Because though we intellectually think and believed at some point that Jesus is in charge of the world, that he'll work it all out, that it'll all be okay in the end, we don't live like it's true. And perhaps it is that we're not listening to the voice of our Saviour. What the people of the word in this season than before? That's a calling on all Christians. Get into your Bible. Prioritise corporate worship and the preaching and being under the preaching of God's word. It is all the more important in this season for us. Okay, so we've talked about Staying near to the shepherd. We've talked about listening to the voice of the shepherd and not being alarmed. Now we need to watch or look upon the shepherd and endure unto salvation. This is where we actually look at, because these are general things the whole, so far. We've looked at general things the whole world is going to experience. Now we look at specific trouble that Christians will experience. It's a bit like, uh, you know, in, maybe in your contract uh, for your job, you might get sort of job conditions that are written up in the contract and there's a list of them in there. You know, this is, you know, these are the conditions you can expect, sort of pay conditions, uh, health, uh, you know, the, the benefits that you might get within your job. Well, the Christian working conditions are written here for us from verses 9 to 12. Let me read them out for you. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. It doesn't sound good, does it? Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. Isn't that a chilling statement? The love of many will grow cold. These are the working conditions in the end. In the end times between the fall of Jerusalem, as we said, and the return of Jesus, the working conditions for Christians. This is what it's going to be like. And it has been like. We are, though, I think, because on the one hand, we've felt the contractions of the world in the past century or two, at least in Australia. On the other hand, we haven't felt many of these particular persecutions or troubles that Christians might face. But we have felt some. You know, perhaps we haven't been delivered up to tribulation and put to death in Australia, though we Christians have in many places in the world. So this is something that we've faced. Christians being hated by all nations for Jesus' name's sake. Well, it does seem that throughout history, Christians have been a particularly hated people for little to no reason, doesn't it? So one thing I'd say to that is don't take it personally when you feel like Christians have been, you know, like Christian ethics have been sort of torn down by society, this is going to happen. This is actually a part of the end times. 
You know, though we've, we're interesting because cultures have risen and fallen, so if they may pick up again. We may see a great revival and a great downturn before the end. We should not be surprised by these things. Jesus has told us this will happen. Jesus also tells us many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And that's even within church circles. And some of us have really felt that in our time. We have seen others fall away for various reasons. We've seen people be betrayed, haven't we? And we've seen hatred come, even within church circles. And it's been terrible. But we should not be surprised. We've seen false prophets arise and lead many astray. Again, notice many saying this will happen to a lot of people. That is, people have risen up with false teaching and Christians have gone into all sorts of weird and wacky things and been diverted from the main truth about Jesus. And it keeps happening. Again, we should not be surprised. And because of all this, the love of many will grow cold. That's kind of the culmination is that love may grow cold. It is very sad. I want to tell you that we can endure. The reason is verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Why can we endure? Well, firstly, I want to tell you that Jesus went through all of these things himself only a few days from when he spoke these words. Did he not? Jesus was delivered up to tribulation and put to death. Was he not? Just a few days. This is uh, at least the Tuesday or the Wednesday uh, before Good Friday. Jesus was put to death by people who hated him. People who were angry with him about his teaching. People were angry that he was taking others away from their teaching themselves. Many fell away from Jesus on his last moments. You notice in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested, all his disciples ran away. He was alone to face an unjust trial. Notice that Jesus was betrayed by one of his own. Judas, with the 30 pieces of silver, was given that money to reveal the location of Jesus at just the right time so that they could put him to death. Notice that hatred had brewed between God's people. Though they should have been waiting and anticipating and accepted him with great love, their Messiah, they hated him enough to put him to death. Jesus' ministry was during a time where there were many false prophets, people to be claiming to be the Christ, and they were not. We'll learn about that later in the New Testament. We see that the love of many had grown cold during Jesus' time, so much so that they would even put him to death. Now, why do the sheep need to see this? Because they need to see that their saviour, 
the one they listened to, was willing to go to death, even death on a cross, for his sheep. Because Jesus didn't do it just because people turned against him and betrayed him. Jesus didn't do it just because they hated him and there was false teaching going on and their love had grown cold. No, that was what was in their hearts. What was in Jesus' heart? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to die for his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That was Jesus' reason. He was taking a far greater enemy, the sin, that would separate them from God forever. forever. That's what Jesus was doing. That was his motivation. And so we have a saviour, a good shepherd, who endured unto and through death to win for us a great salvation. And so we then, the sheep of his pasture, should look upon Jesus' great endurance and go, he has won the victory for us. We have something wonderful to look forward to, a great salvation where every good thing that comes as being part of God's family is set aside for us. And so we can endure through similar circumstances Why? Because our Saviour endured it first for us so that we would have an eternal blessing with him. We can endure because we have this great hope. Now this only really works in practice when the sheep, i.e. we, are more focused on the great treasure we have in God's salvation than the earthly treasures we might seek after here. It only works that way. The interesting thing is that when Christians are under significant pressure through persecution and their particular troubles, the ones we've mentioned, we seem to stop clinging to these false saviours and start clinging to Jesus himself. Why does that happen? Because we realise that those other saviours, the false ones, they don't pay dividends. It doesn't work at the end of the day. When you're being particularly targeted for being a Christian and you can't escape it and not be led astray. We've been reminded to listen to the voice of the shepherd, be people of the word even more than before and not be alarmed. We've learnt to look upon the shepherd and his work for us, therefore endure under salvation. And finally, we are called to follow our good shepherd and work towards worldwide evangelism. The beautiful thing here in verse 14 is it tells us that before the end, the good news about Jesus will go out to every nation in the world. Jesus will get the job done through his people. He will do it. He will make sure that it happens before the end. Everything will be done that needs to be done. Every box will be ticked before that last day. And so perhaps just before, as we had the working conditions for the Christian, now we have the job description for the Christian. We are to be people who are focused like Jesus is, on worldwide evangelization, that the, the gospel of the kingdom 
would be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. That should be our great hope. Christians have been focusing on this for 2,000 years and we are called to continue to focus on this. This is the big thing. This is God's main thing. Do you know why? Because everything else will fail us in this world, but God will never fail us. Every other saviour will never pay up, but Jesus has already paid out. And so this news is utterly important, all the more so when we see people who are wrestling with the fear and the anxiety of our current times. All the more so we should be working towards worldwide evangelism. What does this mean for us? Well, I think we need to get things in the right order. Often we, uh, and I think, I think about this in terms of our prayer life, often we think about our prayer life just in terms of our needs. Like what, what we need for here and now. We're thinking about, you know, kind of those things from God that we've mentioned that we might seek from other people. Security, health, wealth, education. And all those things. But then we stop there. Now, Jesus, of course, encourages us to pray for the things that we need to ask him. Give us this day our daily bread. But that's only one part of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? And it actually comes after your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, doesn't it? Interesting. I think we've got those things out of order. In fact, often all we pray for is give us today our daily bread. Not may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your gospel go worldwide and pray particularly gee, for the work of the gospel, for ourselves in our workplaces, as we've talked about last week. We will be gospel people in our workplaces, that we would work for God's glory in our workplaces, that we would have boldness to share with people, that we would have boldness to keep doing good even when we've run out of uh, you know, the ability to share with people for whatever reason, that we would keep going. That we would invest in missionaries, we invest in churches. Because these things will keep going towards God's great end and goal, worldwide evangelism. And so our prayers are actually a good indicator of what we're really thinking about. And if we're not praying at all, well then I think it's a good indicator we have bought in to finding these things in other places from false saviours. So let's, get, so let's say that again. If you're not praying, you're trying to get these things from someone else other than God. If you're praying just for these things, that's better than not praying, mind you. But if you're praying just for these things, you're still focused only on the here and now. But if you have begun to pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, you are taking part spiritually in God's great goal for this world before the end. You are working towards it as part of God's people. And the interesting thing is when you begin to pray like that, you begin to act like that. You begin to get involved in the work that God is doing in the various ways we've been gifted to. And so that is a very important calling for us. There is something else, though, which I think is a great danger for Christians in our current uh, secular culture, which would work against us, in fact, 
uh, going towards worldwide evangelism. And this is for most of us when we work our sort of, you know, 40 plus hours in, in our various workplaces where there's uh, you know, lots of people who don't know about Jesus or don't follow Jesus. We can be tempted to actually conform to the uh, conditions of this culture which say religion should be kept to yourself or what I would like to call the privatisation of religion. Our culture has bought into this idea. You, you, know, you bring everything to work except for your religious beliefs. And then you, can, then you can do them in your own time, that's fine. You can go to church on Sunday, that's fine. You can meet up with other Christians during the week, but don't bring it to work. Don't let it have bearing upon the way you think about things at work. A good example of that is the new, uh, new South Wales Premier, uh, Dominic Perrottet, has been harshly criticised for his uh, Catholic faith, Roman Catholic faith, and the views that he's taken based on that faith. And many people have said, you shouldn't let your faith have an impact on your governance or your politics, which is a bit ridiculous because everyone lets their beliefs impact their governance. But you can see that there's this pressure. I say this to the working people. There's this great pressure for you to keep your faith private. Now, let's move beyond the work sphere and let's think about our social sphere. There's this great pressure to keep your Christian religious beliefs to yourself. It's okay to be a DIY spiritual person, to be looking into you know, different spiritual ways of thinking, but there is this great pressure to keep your Christian beliefs to yourself. And we Christians have to live within that system in such a way that we are gentle and respectful to those we associate with in our social, family, workplaces, etc., and yet also bold and not fearful so that we may share the great hope that we have in Jesus which triumphs over every false saviour that people are promised. And how can we have that courage? How can we have that courage to be people who follow the leading of the good shepherd? Because that's what Jesus did, didn't he? I mean, you know, it's a lot of the ministry that Jesus did, and we see this in Matthew's Gospel, was speaking God's truth to people who when they heard it, found it very difficult to hear. A lot of what Jesus did was caring for and loving people who others didn't love and care about. And yet that is our calling as Christian people. We're people who follow our good shepherd. We're people who are working towards worldwide evangelism and we are not people who are going to buy into the privatisation of religion. We must be careful, we must be smart and wise about these things. But we must not buy into the great cultural pressure that has been put upon us. Okay, I think we're going to leave it there. Let's pray. I'll invite the band up as well. Lord God, we thank you so much that uh, you have taught us uh, from your word how uh, much we need you. How much we need your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to fill our hearts, uh, to remind us of this truth of who you are that will keep us going in this uh, end times that we're a part of. And help us not to be alarmed nor led astray, but Lord, keep us close to you, that we might be people of the word and people who are prayerfully and actively in our lives working towards 
the whole world knowing you, Lord Jesus. That is our goal because that is your goal. And so help us to do this, we pray. Work in our hearts, take away our fears and replace them with a greater trust in you. We ask for this help today in Jesus' name. Amen.